I said, empty your mind. Be formless, shapeless, like water. It's about how hard you hit. It's about how hard you can get hit and keep moving forward. How much you can take and keep moving forward. Join movement expert Aaron Alexander as he dives into the minds of the foremost innovative healthcare thinkers on their approach to optimal health and wellness. Align Podcast. Welcome back to Align Podcast. My name is Aaron Alexander. Today's beautiful episode was with Mr. John Romanello. John is a New York Times bestselling author. He is a writing coach. He is a fitness, I don't know, what do you say, master coach? He's been in the fitness industry forever and um, highly regarded expert in that realm and overall super insightful fella, as you guys are about to find out. This conversation goes deep into um, depression and anxiety and sexuality and all sorts of really interesting annals of thought. So I hope you guys really enjoy. Thank you so much for tuning into the website, alignpodcast.com, A-L-I-G-N podcast.com. Highly recommend folks starting the five-day movement challenge. Super simple, five fundamental movement practices that everybody ought to be integrating into their daily life uh, will be sent your way. So jump on to alignpodcast.com and you check that thing out. Um, I really greatly appreciate y'all leaving reviews on the iTunes. Thank you so much for doing that. I read every single one and uh, means the world. Also helps the algorithms know that people are paying attention to this thing. So thank you, thank you, thank you for doing that. You can do it on your phone or your computer or whatever is good for you. Um, Last big thanks is to Four Sigmatic for supporting this podcast. Four Sigmatic is a company that I've been using for the last two and change years or so, and um, it is therapeutic medicinal mushrooms in delicious packets in the form of cocos and teas, and they even do chocolates and now protein smoothies, um, just really great stuff. I actually legitimately use it whether they sponsor me or not. And uh, that's why it's so convenient that we can bring it to you at a discount. So you can utilize foursigmatic.com slash align. Use the align code and you'll get 15% off of your purchase. F-O-U-R sigmatic, S-I-G-M-A-T-I-C dot com slash align. <clears throat> and jump on there for a discount. Um, so yeah, I recommend the Reishi mushrooms before going to bed. I recommend cordyceps before working out. Lion's mane is good for the brain. Uh, whatever you're into. Um, I think we're good. I really greatly appreciate y'all tuning in. I hope you enjoy this podcast. If you do, feel free to reach out to me or John on the Instagrams. And um, yeah, love to hear from you. All right, here we go. Back to the show with Mr. John Romanello. Pow. Align Podcast. I'm getting back into, like, honestly, like, weekly movement. Make good. sure I do yoga once a week. Dope. What kind of yoga are you doing? I'm currently doing Kundalini, so I've. Um, good. You're getting weird. I'm super weird. Yeah. That's good. What's so? Are you like? Um, are you having like hot red revival, Holy Spirit, no. Kundalini risings, or anything? No, nothing like oh, that. Okay. <laughs> um, uh, uh, we'll see, we'll see how weird it gets. Yeah. Right. That's good. What do you think? What are your thoughts on Kundalini so far? Um, I mean, you know, everything everything is weird. Yeah. In in life, I don't I don't know. My my thoughts are that um, <clears throat> when it's well explained, it makes sense. The way you know anything else makes sense if it's well explained. But um, I am enjoying it more than the the faux inspirational sort of LA style yoga that people seem to gravitate towards when it's like it's uh, a, 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 a 
a predominantly physical practice that has like a sheen of spirituality on top of it. I don't love that. Yeah. But yeah, this seems solid. So what is your, <clears throat> what is your background in bodybuilding and such? Mm-hmm. And why did you get into it in the first place? What was the, the impetus there? Yeah. Um, goodness. Well, how deep do you want to go? Deep. <laughs> the, the, the story, the canon, the legend of Roman <laughs> is very, is true. It's not untrue. It's that I uh, was a chubby kid historically. And then sophomore year of college, um, just had this sort of, you know, call to adventure moment where I looked in the mirror and I'd been getting very chubby because I was, I was never uh, like a, a truly athletic kid. But I looked in the mirror and didn't love what I saw in that same way many, many people have that experience. And I just, I couldn't reconcile the person I was internally with the person I appeared to be externally. And, you know, there's a lot of research that just shows the way we've been socialized to look at bodies. We look at people who are overweight and we believe that they are less intelligent, that they are of less value, et cetera. So detaching from all of those things over time, you know, took work, but those apply doubly to ourselves. And I was like, all right, this, I don't, I don't like this look. And so I dove in driven mostly by vanity and, you know, a desire for self-love, which is underlying self-loathing to get in shape. That is, that's the legend. I chubby kid gets fit, changes my life, gets into fitness, eventually gets into bodybuilding, et cetera. But the stuff that I had never really talked uh, talk to about or, or spoken about or really, really even admitted to, to most people was that a lot of the underlying reason for wanting to be big and strong was to feel safe as a child of, um, a survivor of, of uh, physical abuse. And uh, then I would later find out much later in my life, I would uncover childhood sexual abuse. Mm-hmm. Um, it seems very clear to me now, having the perspective that so much of my desire to be big and strong was to feel safe. Firstly, if you are of a certain size, that is a deterrent physically from anyone who might hurt you, but then also wanting to feel uh, capable of handling threat was a driving force. And then if you even remove and go one layer deeper into the psychology of it, when you are uh, someone who is abused, particularly when you're young and it's an area uh, that you, you have no control of, you have no control over your environment, you have no control over the things you're seeing or experiencing and you have in a very real sense, somebody is taking away your control over your own body. And so I think that there's this driving force uh, in many people, particularly young men who are survivors of childhood sexual assault to seek control over their body and fitness, bodybuilding, that was a way to, to create that manifestation that, you know, if you're, if you can, bend and mold your corporeal form to your will, that is a type of control, you know, controlling your diet, controlling your physique. These are ways to reclaim something that had been taken from me when I was young. And so those are the, those are all the deeper underlying things about which, you know, I didn't speak for all my years in the fitness industry. And now with all the therapy and the psychedelics and all the journeying, they become uh, firstly easier to talk about and to admit to myself. But then secondly, I'm you know, putting those pieces together mm. is, is much simpler. How did you go about uncovering the sexual trauma? Was it, had it been like repressed or? Oh, completely repressed, which is such an interesting thing. Real repression is very rare. 
and it makes for very interesting TV drama. It's a nice plot point and like, like amnesia, but it rarely happens. And when it's uncovered, it is usually not internal. It's external, which is to say that if there are things that have been done to you when you're a child, it's usually some other person in your life that begins to reveal this to you. Someone mentions something and that sort of opens the jar. In my particular case, I happened to stumble across a thread of a memory while I was on MDMA. It was my second experience with MDMA. This was not therapeutic MDMA. I was just rolling for fun. And um, I was having this conversation with a friend of a friend that turned kind of deep and it was a story about my childhood. My father is very, very abusive to me uh, physically. <clears throat> and when you tell a story about childhood abuse and, you know, you see people's reactions, and this is, this is something that happens over time in all victims of abuse, that we try to downplay it for other people. And so you develop this way of talking about it. And so, you know, I would, I would have this when people would ask and I was comfortable discussing, I'd have this story, this way. And as a storyteller, I teach storytelling. You develop this rhythm where you are comfortable telling the story and you always have the same notes and you hit the same beats. And my father's physical abuse of me was, was pretty um, serious and you know, that I, I had wound up with a, a cracked skull at one point and I, I actually, to the, I only have 60% capacity in my right lung because he had broken my ribs at one point and I had a collapsed lung, which has you know, all sorts of effects on my physicality to this day. You know, I'm not a great swimmer because I'm not buoyant. In any event, I'm on MDMA, I'm having this conversation with someone, and the beat I always hit at the end of revealing this to a person was, I mean, it could have been so much worse, at least I didn't get raped. Which is kind of a really weird fucking punchline, to, but it, you know, it creates context for people that like, okay, I understand that as bad as it was, it could have been much worse for me. And as this came out of my mouth, and I said, well, at least I didn't get raped, um, there was a part of me that woke up and realized like, that is actually not true, I don't think. Right. <clears throat> and then the next, uh, the next um, MDMA journey was uh, sooner than it should have been. I normally like to take like several months between, but this was about, about maybe five weeks later because I wanted to do the digging. And I began to have some memory surface. And then I, you know, through therapy, was able to start pulling out more and more and more. And it was devastating because there's so much of this trauma that is fresh. Having processed all of the physical abuse on, on the, you know, on, on the part of my father, it's, it's like all of these things that have happened, they're like shards of shattered glass, right? It's this piece of you that is broken by someone else. And to process it, you have to pick up these pieces and look at them and examine them and see what they mean or could have meant or, or mean in context. And the more you do that, both time and exposure, but also the handling, it dulls the edges of that glass. And so talking about my, my father, it, you know, I know how to handle, I know the shape, I know how to avoid getting cut. But this, this new thing that I had unearthed, it was like just reaching into a bag and just coming out with a lacerated hand every time because it was also fresh. And it was so interesting that I'd suppressed it for like 26, 27 years. So, you know, these, these instances of, of sexual abuse had occurred from the time I was around six to eight um, at the hands of a great uncle. And 
having those conversations with anyone, it was, I, it just, it really was difficult because it was like fresh trauma that I was just unearthing. And as hard as it was to start moving through that in the initial stages, I will say that, um, it was a relief of a sort in that it began to help me explain a lot of my behaviors and it didn't fix them. You know, it did not, it did not in any way help me change the behaviors or break the patterns that I needed to break. That's, that was something that I needed to be worked through independently. Um, but at least it began to give me some awareness of why I had the fears that I did or why I behaved the way that I did or ran from the things that I did. And that over time gives you the, it, it informs the way you need to approach things therapeutically. Hmm. Is there any, any standout, um, modalities or approaches or practices or things or movements or words or anything that, that helped gain relationship with those experiences? I mean, you know, the therapeutic modalities that I've with, with which I've had the most success, um, are, uh, so, uh, CBT cognitive behavioral therapy didn't work for me the way I would have wanted it to. And I think that a lot of that has to do with the fact that when I was really in it, I was not as aware of the traumas as I should have been, or at the very least, I was not, uh, I had not reconciled as much as I needed to in terms of really admitting the things that had happened or the things that I had done. So uh, dialectical behavioral therapy has been far more helpful in DBT. Hmm. And that is great. And then in addition, you know, I know that there are, is whatever attachment people might have to hearing the use of psychedelics. And I know we're in, in the very strange place with this currently where it's the hot new trend in the entrepreneurial sort of spiritual crowd to have this discussion about psychedelics. But there is, there's a lot of benefit to be gained from being able to separate and, and to foster the objectivity necessary to look at things. And yeah. mushrooms uh, or psilocybin has been very, very helpful to me. MDMA has been very helpful to me used in controlled settings. But beyond that, just working through and acceptance and, and really like consistent examining. And for me, like anything else, the practice that, that has, has saved me has always been writing. Hmm. Yeah. Writing's a big one. Do you do like free writing? I don't. I know. I, so I know that a lot of people have masturbatory journaling practices. So like they, you know, do their pages in the morning. <laughs> I, I, you know. I like, I write to write. I write things that are to be read. I don't have a ton of, you know, like when I need to get introspective, I do, I use it for that, but I'm still like putting it in the context of how is this going to serve other people? And so one of the most popular things I've ever read, uh, written rather is my, I wrote this 7,000 plus word piece on my struggle with depression and suicide. Now that, that I wrote before I began to publicly speak about the, um, the sexual abuse, but it's, you know, my point is that any, any inkling I have of just journaling to journal about my depression, you know, is that's not really there for me. It, it's there, but it's, it, it feeds into it's, it's research, it's self research for something that will eventually be published. You know, I, for, for me, nothing's really real until I've written about it. And my writing isn't real until I feel like it can be read and of service to other people. Yeah. And so my actual journaling, I don't do morning journaling, you know, the whole, the whole, I mean, I, you know, I see value in, in the way that people do it. It's just not the way to do it. I'm a very Doogie Howser journaler. I 
do my journaling at the end of the evening and it is to record the events of the day. And it's, this is what happened. This is what I thought about it. And it's really so that my biographer has things organized whenever, whoever this person might be, should there ever be interest in uh, kind of checking the state of mind from the perspective of someone else, it's, it's there and it's organized. So this is what happened in one. When you were going through all like the bodybuilding stuff and like the vanity and kind <clears> of <throat> superficially creating all these, these walls, were you also experiencing the depression and those at the same time? Ish. I was diagnosed with depression when I was 17 years old. And I got into bodybuilding when I was 20. Between 17 and 26, I had maybe three bouts of depression. So mm -hmm. there, there was stuff that was there. And, uh, you know, so everything kind of had overlap, but it was not in any way concomitant. I don't think that, you know, moving through periods of deep vanity made me more or less likely to experience depression. It would just, you know, I had some sort of external focal point, And that was a necessary part of my journey. Yeah. The, the bodybuilding... Um, became important to me as an identity marker. You know, you like, you don't do bodybuilding, you are a bodybuilder yeah. and it's this thing that you get to put on and, and live in. And, you know, uh, as, as much as it is real and important that for me, there's also this sort of acknowledgement that I got to hide inside that, that muscular carapace. It was very much armor. It's interesting. So, you know, you know, like the Wonder Woman pose and the Amy Cuddy, like, you know, when you're hunched over, it's a depressed position. When you're upright, it's like a proud <laughs> testosterone goes up, all that mm -hmm. stuff. It's interesting when you start thinking about people like in your position where you were nailing all like the physiological markers of like feeling really great. But meanwhile, inside there was like this, like this, like storm happening. Sure. But I think it's worth acknowledging that that storm was going to be happening regardless. So as so how much more extreme would that internal tempest have been had I not been hitting those outward poses, right? Because those right. things, I, you know, I don't think that they're, they're running in, um, in contrast to one another. I do yeah. think that, that there is this very real benefit that I was gaining and being able to tap into from doing all of this stuff, from gaining control, from being in control of my body, Whereas had I not been doing them, the maelstrom of the, of, of the trauma would have been swirling under the surface regardless. This was one way to mitigate that to whatever extent it could. Yeah. You couldn't cure it, certainly, before there was acknowledgement. But I think it would have been worse without it. What would you do for when you'd feel like a depression bout coming on? What's, how does one navigate that? That is, that is a question for everyone on an individual level. For me, yeah. <clears throat> they, my depressive episodes when I was younger were fewer and further between. They were also less intense. And so they've intensified over the years. They, they've also changed now. Everything, everyone is different. You never know. It, it is, a storm is a really good metaphor because you don't know. Some, some storms, even you know, hurricane to hurricane, some of them are wetter than others. Some of them are windier than others. Some of them are longer than others. Whenever I felt a depressive episode coming on, any time prior to me being 34, I would just pretend it wasn't coming. I would just do life harder, and I would act happier. I would, I would dig in, I w and I just, it, it wasn't until I was 34 years old and published that piece on depression that I told anyone in my life. The only people who knew were my therapist, my mother, my, um, one of my friends and, you know, 
depressive. People who suffer from mental illness, we are some of the finest actors in the world. And so much of of having mental illness is pretending you don't have mental illness and, and putting on this this act for people. And you just sort of get committed to that. And as as the you know, the clouds form on the horizon and you see things darkening, you just ignore it and you just keep doing keep doing the thing. So these days, having acknowledged and taken control of the mental illness, at least in as much as I am very cognizant of when it's coming, the goal now is to minimize the upset to my life. If you know that there is a hurricane on the horizon, you cannot pretend it's not there. Instead, I covered the windows with wood and, you know, batten down the hatches. And that to me means how can I acknowledge the ways that my life is going to be upset, my lack of productivity, not wanting to go out, not wanting to be social, withdrawing from a lot of my relationships and my interactivity within those. And you just let people know. You, you put everyone on high alert. This is what's coming. You, and, and, that, and having those conversations is very difficult and it became a very important thing over time to be able to do that. And for me, uh, it's what led into my advocacy in terms of mental health and mental illness and putting that on the internet and just letting everyone know, letting everyone know, all of my readers and my followers and whoever else might be interested in looking at my stuff, this is an area of struggle. This is what's happening or is about to happen. And here are the ways that it's going to affect me or has affected me in the past. And, you know, to this day, it's a challenge whenever I'm in the, in the midst of a deep depression, people at least now people know because there is a very real change that happens in my um the outward manifestation of me at least through my <clears throat> my internet presence i go i go dark for mm. weeks and people won't hear from me and so now when that begins to happen even if it's just because i'm busy then i start to get the dms and the emails are you okay what's going on and you know that's um that's its own thing. How is that getting DMs from strangers saying like, are you okay? That's fine. I mean, I appreciate the concern, but, um, and, and I also, sometimes like, where's the concern coming from is always like an interesting question. Maybe not always, but it's like, it's like, who are these people? I don't know. I mean, I don't know. We, we have a weird fucking job, you know, this, every, everything, like if you're, if you're a content creator, if you're an influencer, <clears throat> it's, uh, you know, people DM me and they're like, dude, what's your skincare regimen or what books are you reading? Have you watched Umbrella Academy yet? What, you know, oh, I, I saw this, this, uh, you know, I recently went and saw Take Mech Sunday. It made me think of you. How do these people whom I've never met and, and to whom I've had uh, only, or with whom I've only had limited interaction on Instagram or Facebook know what my favorite band is or know the things that I'm into because we put that out there. Yeah. And so I don't view someone checking in on me with regard to my mental health as any more or less invasive or intimate uh, or interested or interesting than somebody asking what my skincare regimen is. This is the path that we have chosen. This is what we do. We put ourselves out there. And the fact that anyone gives a shit at all is humbling. You know, it's like, how did I get to this place where what? And, and I, I use humbling literally. When most people say humbling, they mean honored. But um, it really makes you feel small in a way that like what, there, maybe people shouldn't care about me because that's how depressive people act. You know, that's how we think. Mm. Um, <laughs> and so I, 
I just try to, you know, meet it with appreciation and gratitude. And it's also sort of a, you know, like as a, as a brooder and as, as sort of a, a comedic misanthrope in, in that way that all depressed people tend to view the world in, in all of its absurdity. Uh, it's also funny to me. I'm just like, sometimes it's like, guys, I'm, I'm just busy. I'm cool. It's not like, not every time I'm off Instagram for a week, am I going to kill myself? Yeah. But yeah, it's, uh, I, I appreciate it. It's, it's interesting because getting annoyed about it or feeling any negative way about it doesn't do anything for me. But the most important thing is that for every DM I get that might make me feel uncomfortable with this veritable stranger asking after my personal mental health, I get 10 from strangers thanking me for helping with theirs. Mm -hmm. And if that's the price, if that's the ratio, then I'm more than okay with it because I get DMs and emails all the time from people who who say thank you for, for writing the things that you've written or the, you know, the depression piece helped me understand my father who suffers from depression or my partner. And most of the, the emails and DMs are, I would say historically, most of them are not from people who they themselves suffer, but for people who know people who suffer. Yep. And that is, that is gratifying. As you were talking before, it was like, there's, uh, there's a roomy quote like the the cure for the pain is in the pain and there's a bunch of people that quote like similar things like that like going into the pain is oftentimes that's where the answers are but i feel like we kind of we kind of got fucked up by like the secret and the you know laws of attraction and manifestation and all that yeah. because i feel that myself i just did a month long thing where we were like introspecting and doing all sorts of weird stuff and a part of that was going into like these dark parts and your fears and the things that you never want to think about. And I have all sorts of shit like that because I've been like secreting myself into like positivity. Yeah. And I'm like, Oh no. Like there's like these, there's still these festering corners in yeah. there. Right. You know, it, you say around 34, you started exploring those parts. Yeah. I mean, both well, they were hidden from me, but I mean, I, you know, I, I just, I will say in general that I, uh, you know, if you if you look at sort of the difference between New York and L.A., um, I've always I, I'm a brooding, cynical, pragmatic New Yorker, mm-hmm. and <clears throat> anyone who says positive vibes only is, I think, immediately available for a punch in the face and, and deserving of it. I think that's fair. And, uh, you know, so <clears throat> it's like from, from the, from, you know, well, well ahead of my uncovering or uh, my, my acknowledgement of all of the trauma, I still, you know, was very much, um, you know, not, not encouraging everyone to, to like fall into their, you know, brooding narcissist sort of uh, uh, expression of themselves. But I, I just really, I do think that, uh, you know, false positivity is really dangerous. I think that putting out this incredible, you know, just like, yeah, we're, we're just like, it, you can choose happiness. No, I mean, maybe, maybe you can't to choose happiness at all. Maybe you have something wrong in your fucking brain and being happy is like the hardest thing you can do. Maybe, you know, I, I think it diminishes and invalidates or at least marginalizes mental illness. I think that there's a lot of, um, you know, I, I think that people have good intentions. I just think that they're completely unaware of anything outside their own experience. And it's a type of privilege 
and people don't realize that not having mental illness mental illness is a privilege they don't and so when you have like healthy brain privilege, it's the same thing as white privilege. It's your, doesn't mean your life was easy. It just means it wasn't made harder by your natural brain chemistry. <laughs> and, um, you know, in, in the same way that, you know, white privilege, it doesn't mean that your life was easy. It doesn't mean you didn't face challenges. It just means that this color of your skin wasn't one of them. Mm-hmm. And like people don't want to unpack and acknowledge that. And the same thing with, you know, it, it's it's really hard to see, you know, people who are who have all the privilege in the world and and, you know to just talk about positive vibes only it's like yeah like the world isn't actively trying to fucking you know hurt you and in in the case of someone like myself who presents outwardly as a straight white male the world is pretty much set up for my success and i can acknowledge that cognitively but when i'm in the midst of the depression and you know there's this paranoia that the universe was created specifically to find a way to create to cause pain <laughs> in my life and that's you know there's this like weird underlying sort of uh, arrogance and narcissism it's like everything in the world exists to cause me pain and to make me hurt and to make me hate myself which is something you can only like really even get to um with a lot of therapy and introspection and and i think psychedelics um, so, you know, well, well in advance of me ever acknowledging any of this, there's always been a very great resistance to the, this projected positivity ideology that is so prevalent, um, on Instagram and in particular in LA. Yeah, totally. And uh, you know, to me it's, uh, there's very few things I, I, I take a, uh, again, I'm a pragmatist <clears throat> and I, I think that, um, you know, like in general, I would rather have like deal with someone who has like slightly undeserving arrogance than someone who has obviously false humility, you know, because it's, it's just infinitely more tolerable. And by the same token, um, I would, I would rather deal with someone who has an unjustifiably dour outlook on life than one that is unjustifiably positive. Yeah. Or at least if they're going to espouse that and put that out on the internet. It's interesting how like, to use like Freud's terms, like the super ego or like the kind of the consciousness, the zeitgeist kind of chooses what's appropriate for us to express versus what's not. Mm-hmm. And so like your sexuality and you know, your, your penis and your anus and those are like, we just don't talk about that, you know? Mm. And there's certain emotions. It's the same thing. We just, we don't talk about that. We just do more like pictures yeah. of us being awesome. And then, but at the same time, when you shut that stuff down, it just ends up festering and becoming more toxic. It's super fucking ironic that we like these things that it, they need the most care, but the culture ends up kind of by design, like shadowing those spots. Yeah. Was there any, any things that you did specifically to start to open some of those parts up? Like, say around the depression around sexuality no i mean for me it's you know like the the darkness has always been the draw you know like once you once you have an acknowledgement of it um so the depressive stuff you know the more that i um lived it the more i lived in it and then um once i started talking about it it's it's what i wanted to talk about Mm -hmm. because i i saw that it was helping people and i wanted to destigmatize it so I think that the the way that other people 
can get into that part of themselves is to is to interact with the people who are already doing that and i think that that's where community helps so much of all the things that have helped me in depression you know i have i've been very very lucky that i have so many people in my life they're like you know they're there for you and they want to help you and everything but the thing that helps the most is just like and i I, and i i like really hate to fall back on on such maxims i'm like you know misery loves company (laughs) but i think that um Pain loves understanding is really what it is. Pain craves understanding, deep understanding, empathy. And for me, the the thing that has been the most helpful is being able to discuss my depression with other people who suffer from depression. Mm-hmm. Having a 10-minute conversation with a person who also suffers from mental illness is more helpful to me in terms of being seen and heard and loved and helpful, uh, helped and understood than 10 hours of conversation with someone who does not themselves suffer. It's, it's just very much, you know, maybe I lack the language or maybe I just have a block with, with my ability to recognize empathy from a person who doesn't have that same experiential access. But the end of the day like i i just think that you know commiseration is the deepest form of conversation yeah with regard to mental illness how did you get into the writing stuff being such a passion of yours i've been i was a writer before i was anything else i okay. i've always been a writer it's, it was when i was a kid and there was abuse in the house reading and writing were my escapes it was the the thing that i could always do you know it's so interesting that we uh, you know i noticed this now this is a very strange comparison but i'll loop back around and, and make it make sense i noticed that as a writer and you know as someone who is always taking notes on the world if i have a notebook and someone says something interesting and I just start writing when I'm in a conversation with someone and um, this is going to sound a little weird. So I, I will loop back around whenever I'm out with someone and um, <clears throat> you know, if, if someone says something interesting or I just want to write something down, if I have a notebook and I start taking notes, nobody says anything, but if you, and, and this is just another like piece of the, 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 uh, social enforcement of norms that people think that they are trying to make you a better person. If I'm having a conversation with someone and I take out my phone and I start typing on it, it could be to take those same notes, but there's something about looking at a screen and being involved in it in some way where people find that very offensive or they think for whatever reason that you're not paying them mind. Whereas if you do it on a, with pen and paper, then it is totally okay. They, they almost feel happy about it. And so when I was a child, um, you know, I had two ways to entertain myself. Uh, there was reading and writing, and then there were video games. And when I was young and there was, you know, all the screaming and fighting and dish breaking and all this shit happening in my house, um, there was this behavior around video games. Like if I wanted to escape from what was happening and I played Zelda, and oh. I just wanted to be there. Um, it was treated as though I was not honoring the horror that was happening around me. You know, how can you play video games at a time like this? You know, my sister would be upset with me. You know, my parents would come in and yell at me. They would take that away because things are happening and you're seeking recreation. When, when I, what I was seeking was escape. And so 
but reading, if they come in and find you reading a book, it's like, well, even in the midst of, of this insanity and this pandemonium, he is trying to find a way to educate himself in some way. That was lauded. And so as a child, reading and writing were escapes that were never taken from me. They were never criticized. They were always, um, I always had access to them. And so I've been a writer my entire life. And when I was eight years old, I told my mother I wanted to write a book. When she asked me why, I said, because books make me happy and I want to make other people happy as well. And then throughout my life, I just kept writing and writing. And so it, it's not as though, you know, I, I think that there are some people who still labor under the delusion that I was this fitness guy and then I decided or found passion in writing. No, for me, I've always been a writer and I have always written about the thing about which I am passionate about at any given moment. And if it hadn't been fitness, it would have been something else. It just happened to be fitness because that was something that I found and a passion I developed. And it seemed easy for me to write about. And every time I wrote about it, it made me more and more successful. So I did that. How does one cultivate their voice in the writing? Um, your voice is... Your voice is you. And then it really begins to, if we really want to go deep with this, and I feel like this is a place where we can do that, it's asking yourself, what is you? What are the things that make you who you are? And, you know, I won't, we won't go to the absolute top level of, of spirituality and just say, like, you are this being that has always been and will always be. But in terms of, like, who you, the human, is, you are an aggregate, a conglomeration of whatever base genetic material was granted and, and created at your inception. Um, and then your consciousness run through all of the experiences that you've ever had. So everything, every, all, every memory specifically, but also everything you've ever read, every movie you've seen, every conversation you've had, every song you've listened to, this all becomes canon and gets, you know, indelibly burned into you in some way. And then they, all of these, these ingredients interact. The consciousness that you have at this very moment is going to take what I say in this conversation and that'll get filtered in in some way. And that will interact with all of the other ingredients and memories that you have, that you have accrued over the course of your life. And then you will come out of this conversation being 0.000001% different than you were. And then tomorrow you'll have a different conversation. All of this gets factored in every conversation, every, every book, every, everything. Your voice as a writer is that, that's you. And it's, you know, you imagine it as a lens. And so whatever thought you have and want to put down on paper gets pushed through that lens. And depending on your level of control over it, you can focus it to make it so strong it could burn a hole through wood or you can make it more kaleidoscopic where it can splay a rainbow across a wall. And all of that already lives inside you. And now what you need to do, like anything else, is harness it, learn how to manipulate and adjust it, and that takes practice. And the way that you do that is reading great writers and understanding the breakdown of the tools and modalities. Writing and reading and talking are things that we have to do in our day-to-day -day society. And so um, in, in, can I mention your book? Yeah, yeah, of okay, course. Cool. Yeah, yeah. 
writing and reading and talking are things that we have to do in our day-to-day society. It's part of how we function. And in your book, the draft of which you were kind enough to show me, you mentioned breathing and nasal breathing. And you talked about how we take between 16,000 and 20,000 breaths per day. And we don't think about most of these. It's the sort of automatic thing that's happening, right? That's, that's just, you know, being regulated by our nervous system. It's just the same um, words are the same way. We just go throughout our day reading words whenever they're, they pop up, you're driving down the street and there are street signs and you, some part of your brain is registering them. You have a conversation with someone like this. You're not picking the words. So there's all this stuff happening. And I always liken it to music. If every single person is making music, then a person who is capable of walking around the world, having conversations and reading and writing, etc., is at the very least capable in musical terms of sitting down at a campfire and strumming out Kumbaya and a couple of other songs. Some of us who have dedicated ourselves to becoming better at communication can play a lot of different songs. We can play other different, you know, we can, we can maybe write our own songs. But if you really want to get good, if you really want to become a great musician, at some point it's not enough to just practice. You have to study music theory. You have to educate yourself on the specific language of this, uh, of this modality because it's, we know good music when we hear it. We know beauty when we see it. Our brains are wired to appreciate visual symmetry and sonic melody. And in the same way, our brains are, are wired to appreciate good writing the flow of the language, the beauty of the words themselves and the order in which they fall, the rhythm and the meter. And most people don't know why writing is good. They just know good writing. They know the difference between good writing and bad. And even people who are not particularly uh, focused on it will read bad writing and they're like, oh, okay, whatever. You know, and, but when they read good writing, it's, they become aware of it. It's like, oh, that is, that's something special. Mm-hmm. And that is the first step, educating yourself on the tool sets and really diving back into everything between third and eighth grade where you learned grammar and morphology and syntax and seeing that these are amazing tools where you can invert sentences and clauses and, and, and the way that you end a sentence doesn't have to be the same every time. And you, you can use punctuation to establish tempo. And when you begin to do that and understand how these things are used in the same way that somebody can begin to understand how to produce music by learning about a tempo and beats, that's how you begin to really figure out what your voice is. Every, every musician who has ever created uh, a song, like it, that's, their vo- that's their musical voice, even if it's not their actual vocal, if, if it's just their production or their instrument. Um, it's the way that you view the world put on paper uh, push through the lens of your experience, and it happens to be the thing about which you're writing. Is there any standout uh, kind of like faults that you see in people's writings? Like in movement, there's like obvious things <coughs> of like everybody's doing this thing. If we just stop doing that, is there anything that's like a few standouts? Yes, but it's not everybody. It depends on where you came in. Hmm. And in much the same way that if you work with someone who is a, a former bodybuilder versus someone who is a former gymnast, they will present with different movement dysfunction, perhaps. Right. Yeah. Um, 
people who are my parents' generation or, you know, even people who went to, to Catholic school and are my age, they learned grammar. People my age learned something called phonics. And millennials came, brought up um, learning something called whole language. So those are the three primary schools of, of uh, writing instruction in the States. And each of those has sort of inherent... I don't want to say strengths and weaknesses, <clears throat> but each of, each of those is, is taught a certain way. And you will come out of it having focused on different things. People who grew up learning grammar, there is a structure that you're taught and it's drilled into your head. And so deviating from it becomes difficult. And so writing in a way that sounds like you is more challenging because you have to deviate, you know. Whereas people on the, are on the other side of that, the far other side of that spectrum who learned whole language, they were brought up not only learning uh, a more I-centric, the letter I, I-centric way of, of writing. They also grew up in the age of the internet. And that is very much, you know, whereas grammar is very much never use the letter I, always write from a neutral perspective. The whole language is pretty much the opposite of that. So... Their issue, the people who learned whole language, their issue is more grammatical and structural. Like they don't know where the commas go. And that is simply a, you know, how how that presents for them and how how that expression will be based on their level of formal education or the type of formal education that they received. So I would say that it is not specifically everyone doing X, Y, or Z. It's that depending on their entry point, they are more likely to present with a given sort of process. And that process may have holes in it versus others. The, the real issue that I see that's more universal is the lack of attention to writing, particularly in the age of the influencer. And as we are on Instagram and everyone wants pretty pictures, positivity notwithstanding, there is a push, particularly not the entrepreneurial community toward video and you have to do video and you have to have a podcast like this. And all of those things are temporary. They're, uh, not in the way that everything is temporary and le- the existence, you know, that we that we get to experience is but a moment in the in the grand scheme of, of uh, existence. But technology and anything that is reliant on it for production has obsolescence built into it. And that is just the way that the world works. And so when people are focused very much on video they're ignoring the fact that how they're filming that video is representative of the moment in which it's being filmed and that means the technology that they're using to film it but also the way that video is filmed right then you know right now in the you know in 2009 youtube it's a lot of hard cuts everybody's using drones for aerial shots and when you watch something from five years ago it's not like that and so if you are if 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 your audience if our uh, if people in general if the masses are being conditioned. Everyone is biased towards new content. We all want new, right? And so if you put on YouTube and you 
see that something is filmed differently, you'll automatically know like, oh, this is from 2011. People might be less likely to watch it. In the same way, if you put on a movie from the 80s, like the quality of of the film is different. The way that things are filmed are different. If you do remember, like, you know, there's there's that whole in a world joke. You see movie trailers now. Nobody says in a world. There's no voiceover for movie trailers. The way that movie trailers are produced currently is very different. There's there are trends. And so the the mistake that people are making is they are focusing entirely too much on something which is formulaic and trend based whereas writing is elemental and um and eternal you know we are still reading Hemingway. These people still read the Bible. Everybody still wants to write a book. And it's it's because this is the stuff that does not go away. If you were to ask a hundred of the most respected movie critics in the world to name their top five pictures of all time, The Godfather would appear on a hundred lists. Maybe some at number one, some at number five, but there would be a hundred percent consensus that The Godfather is one of the top five films ever made. You agree with that statement? Yeah, I'm on board with that. Okay. I'm going to have to think about it a little bit more, honestly, but yeah, I could go with that. Do you agree that most movie critics would put it on their list? Yeah, I would agree with that part for sure. Okay. So whether or not you and I like think The Godfather is one of the top five films ever made, we could acknowledge that the consensus from those people whose job it is to rate movies would be that it is one of the top five. Now, if someone who had never seen that movie and who has no context for it, if you were to just show them that movie, it would be difficult to focus on the story and the incredible storytelling and acting and direction and writing of the Godfather because you would be focused on your ability to see makeup caked on Al Pacino's face because a movie shot in 1977 shown on even a 4k phone in 2019, it's a vastly different experience. The same thing, you know, in 1975 jaws was the scariest film ever made beach attendance dropped 50% for five years. That's filmed out here, right? Yeah. Yeah. So, a movie comes out in 1975, and then between 1975 and 1980, beach attendance drops 50 years because of this film about a shark. It's well-acted, well-directed, well-scored, well-written. But now, if you were to watch Jaws, it's laughable because you, the technology has surpassed... The technology of today is so far ahead of the technology of 1975 that you see the rubber shark. You see how it's a rubber shark, but... And so it's because of that, you can't be scared. It's laughable. It's mm-hmm. ridiculous. You show, you show, show Jaws to a, you know, a 12-year-old, and you know, it's ridiculous. They're, right. they're down with the Meg, starring Jason Statham, <laughs> um, who, who is a badass, admittedly. Not a great movie, but he is a badass. Yeah. But if you read Jaws now, it's still terrifying. If you read The Godfather, it's still one of the greatest stories ever told. If you read The Exorcist, it's still terrifying, whereas if you watch it now and you see the herky-jerky nature with which this head is supposed to turn around and you see that the, the pea soup is, is not being vomited up but is actually coming from this wire that is just out of frame, you know, this, this tube, it's hard to be afraid of those things. Mm. It's hard to be afraid. But when you read it, it's not. The writing is elemental and eternal, and that is, that is the thing. That's the mistake that everyone is making, that I see, quote, everybody making. It's, it's me, it's my job, my, my vision, my, my quest 
to help people understand that all of these things are completely ephemeral. It's temporary. The way that you're making videos right now will change. Five years from now, people might not want all these hard cuts. They might think that drones are cheesy. They might think that, you know, it's um, that, that you people filming these Instagram stories in their car while they're driving is absolutely absurd. Right. But the written word, that's forever. You know, we're, that's the thing. And so the mistake I, may, I see people making with the writing is not writing and not focusing on it and not getting better at it. As you were talking about uh, the, the difference, the contrast, and, and we'll, we'll wrap up soon because you gotta, you got to wrap up. Oh, we got to wrap up right now. Oh, I'll get about five minutes. We're All good. right, yeah. So, there, so just an interesting idea <laughs> popped up that I don't know that I've ever really pondered, but how much our language, which is a silly because we should be pondering on this, but how much our language and our writing affects the way that we think oh, and yeah, the psychology absolutely. of the culture. Absolutely, yes. The words that we use, words mean things. And the words that we use, this is one of the most important, I'll, I'll, since we're going to close soon, I'll close with this. Yeah. One of the questions I always ask whenever I lead a writing workshop or I'm on stage somewhere <clears throat> is I ask people, what do you think is more important, actions or words? Now, invariably somebody says actions because they take the bait and obviously actions are important. But if I were to ask you, what's your name? Aaron. I would want Aaron. I want you to tell me what your name is in actions. Mm. I want you to tell me where you're from in actions. I want you to explain your worldview. I want you to explain everything that's in your book, everything that's important to you, but I want you to do it solely in actions. You can't do that. Everything that makes you who you are exists in your brain. And the real thing that differentiates humanity from the rest of the animal kingdom, and there are very few things. Like, if you've ever, like, been able to sort of detach from what's exp you're going on around yourself, if you've been at, like, a nightclub, and you're just sort of watching this mating ritual of... It's, it's very similar to watching, like, primates dance around a fire. Very similar. And it's just... It's really... It's this thing that... that animals have been doing forever but you know then we add conversation to it and that's what changes that's the thing that makes everything unique and special to humanity it's the fact that we have thoughts in words and we can transmit them and there's a universality to it where we can make scratches we can put symbols in dirt or on paper or on a wall and then we don't have to be there and someone else could look at those symbols and know exactly what we meant because that's what a written language is that's what it is to have a record of something and the words we th everything that makes you who you are Aaron exists in your brain and in your heart but the only way that you can put it out into the world in a way that like helps me understand definitively is when you speak it. Now, obviously, an argument can be made for you know music or visual arts, or but I'm, I'm just talking in like everyday interaction with people. And so, words are, they're the thing that make us capable of expressing who we are. Not to mention, actions, actions are almost always reactions. Most people are living in a reactive state.
And so when you, you know, when, when, you know, people say things like actions speak louder than words, it's very much like people condemning other people's mistakes and everything. And like, you know, how there's an incongruence between the things that you say and the things that you do. Now, I believe that we should all be aiming for congruence. We should all have alignment between our words and our actions. But I would posit, and this is something that I've come through through therapy and come to through my use of psychedelics and come through through deep self-work. When there is misalignment, when there's incongruence between the words that people say and the actions that they take, that incongruence is because there is a reaction. Their actions are a reaction to something else. The words, their intentions that they speak, that is their expression of their highest self, their hope for who they can be, their hope for the thing that they want to be able to do and the way that they want to be able to show up. And their action if it doesn't match that, it's usually a reaction. And it's usually because the action shows them shows where they are right now and their words are where they want to be. And that when there is that incongruence, um, certainly that can hurt people because there is a misalignment, but it, it should show that that's the place that this, that needs to be worked on, that that's the area where you need to advance as a person that you need to do the work and the healing because we want you to get to the point where there is alignment between your words and actions so that you can, your actions can be representative of your highest place. I can ask you what your position is on violence. And you could say like, you're generally a nonviolent person, but if someone punches you in the face, your reaction to that will probably be violence. And so, you know, your actions are reactions to something else. Another thing I would say is that <clears throat> when you sort of look at, at outcomes, Words inspire actions moving forward. You can say things and set action into motion. Actions really only go backwards. People talk about your actions after the fact. Words can move actions forward into the future. They're the thing that words and thoughts drive things into the future. And then finally, if you're looking for a soundbite, and, and I think that this is really important, your actions give people something to talk about. Your words give them something to think about. I love it, man. I really appreciate all this resistance that you've persevered or in the process of working with in your life. It's like crafted some good stuff. I'm working through <laughs> it every day. I appreciate every day. it. Thank you. Uh, where's the best place to point people? What's, what's, what's sure. exciting? Uh, for those interested in my ramblings and meanderings, johnromanello.com is the central hub for everything that I do. And there you will find my articles, my essays, and... Um, and access to everything else. But if you are looking to interact directly, I encourage you to follow me on Instagram, where I am not nearly as consistent posting uh, narcissistic photos of myself as I should be, but I am fun on Instagram stories. And if you have any questions about writing or anything that we've spoken about today, please feel very free to slide into my DMs. I am always happy to procrastinate on work to have a conversation with a total stranger. <laughs> Perfect. <laughs> <laughs> all right. Thank you, brother. I, My pleasure. I, I appreciate it. I Thank you for having me. Again. All right. Over now. Thank you all so much for tuning into that conversation. I hope you enjoyed it as much as I did. I am super excited to present to you guys the Align Method online program, which focuses on unwinding some of the deleterious effects of essentially staring into technology. So forward head posture, rolled forward shoulders, and just general collapsy postural patterns. And also gets into a movement guide and how to integrate better movement into your life. 
Uh, so you can check that out at alignpodcast.com slash align method, A-L-I-G-N podcast.com slash align method, or you can find it at the Instagram page, align podcast in the bio. Thank you to the folks that have grabbed the align band, heavy duty resistance band with a door anchor and a free video guide that goes with it. So you can actually just access the free video guide if you want, uh, just to get resistance band exercise in general. It's at alignband.com, A-L-I-G-N band.com. All right. Thanks guys so much for tuning in. Appreciate you. Enjoy the rest of your day. Pow.